I cringed a little, as Noah mentioned um, this morning, or actually this afternoon, this morning we began a study of Christology. And it was interesting the way that R.C. Sproul introduced that study. And he quoted Revelation 5. And I cringed a little bit because that was how I wanted to introduce Revelation 6 this morning, was almost exactly like he introduced his study on Christology. But he mentioned that there was a time in heaven in John's vision that in, in my opinion, at least so far in the book of Revelation, and we're in chapter 6, it was the most intense moment. And heaven is a very intense place according to Revelation. Everything's loud, everything's exaggerated, extreme. But in chapter 5, it, John gets a vision of God on the throne and in his hand is a scroll. And this is obviously a very vital scroll, a very important scroll. It has seven seals around it to signify that. And it signifies that there's something very, there's something written in there. It's very important. It's the redemptive plan of God and how it will unfold. And so there's this um, tension and excitement in heaven that we get to see God's redemptive plan and purpose. And there's a challenge that goes out to all the universe, to all known beings in existence by a mighty angel who is worthy to open the seal. We're all excited to see what's in it. And that I think the tense part was the awkward silence in heaven. You don't see that anywhere else. Heaven is loud and boisterous. It's filled with praise and glory and, and activity. And yet for this short period of time, there was this awkward silence because the challenge went out to the universe and as of yet, no one stepped forward. And this caused the Apostle John to weep because the way that scrolls are designed of this kind of importance is that unless you open it, you, it's not effective. You don't get to see what's in it, but whatever's in it is not effective. It's just like if we were to, if our parents had a last will and testament, it's a very important document. We may be even a part of that document. But until it's open at the proper time, by the proper channels, you have to go through all the protocol, then it actually doesn't affect us. And so there's this great anticipation, and the challenge goes out, who is worthy? And then the angel tells John to stop weeping because one has been found, and only one, and it is the lion. That's the vision at first. It's the lion, but when he looks, he sees the lamb. And so you can almost hear all heaven and creation just breathe a sigh of relief. The plan will go on. We get to hear the revelation of Almighty God. So the good news in chapter 5 is that the seals can be loosed. We can know. And yet... The bad news is that the seals can be loosed because what we find as the seals are loosed is terrible series of judgments from the God who reigns and rules on His throne. We are in chapter 6 of Revelation this morning and previously we examined the four horsemen, the apocalyptic horsemen. And if I remember correctly, I believe it was Clint Eastwood who was the pale rider on the last horse. 
That's supposed to be a joke. Uh, you never know with the book of Revelation and the interpretations you get these days. But we looked at the four horsemen that were called forth. This morning we're going to begin in verse 9. And we'll finish the chapter. Now we see the fifth seal will be loosed. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Well, as you can see, this is quite a change of place, and periodically in the book of Revelation, this is primarily judgments. You get this um, interlude. And so while there are judgments taking place on the earth, simultaneously, every once in a while, the camera shifts and we get a glimpse of what's happening in heaven. And in this glimpse, we get a vision of the saints of God. The saints of God are under some kind of altar. So we take it from famines and beasts that have been unleashed on earth and all kinds of catastrophes right up into heaven and we find these saints. And they're not just your typical saints. They are saints that have been martyred. And they are under an altar. So we have, we're introduced into temple language, if you will. It's an altar there. So we want, we're familiarizing ourselves and we're getting some kind of picture of this. It's meant to be just a vague picture because obviously they are not any kind of atoning sacrifice. In fact, the text doesn't tell us, well, what altar are they under? How specific can we get in this vision? Is it under the uh, altar of burnt offerings? Is it under the altar of incense? We don't know because that's not the point. As a matter of fact, these martyrs in a sense, well, they're the sacrifice. They're the sacrifice that is taken place because they have given their lives for the sake of the gospel. But we will hear a lot about temple language in the book of Revelation. And it's something that, of course, first century Jews were very familiar with, and anyone who studies scripture will become familiar with the temple. And it gives us a reference point to understand what's happening in the heavenly places. Habakkuk tells us that the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We know that God is not restricted to just the temple in the Old Testament. And that when Jesus came, he tabernacled, he templed, same word, among us. And Corinthians tells us, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? But there's temple language. The idea is that the presence of God dwells there. The places often change. You will see in Revelation that there are a series of temples. As a matter of fact, the Garden of Eden had temple-like characteristics as the dwelling place of God. And yet in Revelation, though it goes into great detail about the temple, even some of the measurements, the whole point of heaven and earth, or at least the new heavens and the new earth, is that there are no temp- there is no temple, there's no need for a temple, because the presence of God is there. But in Revelation, we will see a lot 
of temple language as a reference point to help us understand what's going on in these mysterious visions. These saints are under the altar because they have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So it's no question how they found their death or how they met their their fate. They were killed because they held fast to God's word. They believed it as truth. And they not only drank it in for themselves, they weren't just personally blessed by the truth of God, but they shared it, as God's word tells us to do. Hide it under a bushel, no, right? So they were bold, they were courageous, they were excited about God's word for themselves, but they were also excited to share the good news and the truth and to share the gospel with others, with others that would hear. And in some cultures and in some places and times, that means a sentence of death. Because there are not every place is friendly to the gospel. And yet the command of the Great Commission is still there, lingering over our heads as believers, share the good news. And so there's that tension that we have to wrestle with. The book of Revelation begins with Jesus speaking to the seven churches that represent all the churches of all time. And one of the, the uh, exhortation and encouragements that he gives to the church is to hold fast. Hold fast. Because the Christian life is not smooth all the time like we like it to be. It gets very, very rough. Sometimes even to the point of death. But these believers in this vision so loved and believed God's word that they did not back down and they didn't compromise even in the face of peril. And we don't know exactly how they suffered here, but we do know that they met their death. D.A. Carson says, we either follow Satan and suffer the wrath of God Or follow God and suffer the wrath of Satan. So there are consequences to both. And one thing our passage will do this morning, if nothing else, it will cause us to think. It will provoke us to think. Because as believers on a daily basis, based on the past, the present, and what is to come, we have thinking to do, ciphering to do, we have decisions to make. Satan is behind all of the persecutions of Christians. He does not like the church of God. He wants to squash any kind of vibrant life that a Christian might have. He wants to squash any kind of church that that makes a powerful impact on the kingdom of God and makes God's truths known through their lives and through the worship. He is behind all of the opposition. He rebels against it. However, to live for Satan is to have God as your enemy. So there's persecution. There's wrath that each person must must face at one time or another. There's a sense in which to embrace the safety that Satan may offer is to run into the wrath of God. But also... To, to embrace the safety, okay, 
To embrace the safety of the enemy is to run into the wrath of God. But to embrace what God offers is to run into the wrath of Satan. And that's the tension in our life. See, there's this, this fierce scenario here of potential torture. The idea is that whatever we might face in this earth, no matter how terrifying, the wrath that God presents is the most terrifying possible scenario. So what do we fear the most? What, where do we find or where do we long for our safety and our security and our eternity? A lot of times people have asked, why is God's wrath so fierce? Why does hell have to be so fierce? There's a lot of different answers that have been given to that. But I think perhaps the answer that I like the most is that God's wrath is so fierce because God is so holy. Because God is so worthy. It's a heinous crime to not ascribe to the glorious God as He has revealed Himself in Scripture, to not worship Him, bow down before Him, take joy in Him. It's cosmic treason to not do that from that perspective. I've given the illustration before. If you visited my house and you were mad at me or just a tyrant of some sort looking for trouble or fun and you threw a rock through my window, you might get a slap on the hand. If you go to the White House and throw a rock through the window, you're going to be persecuted to the highest degree because of the clout that is involved there. I'm a nobody. You see, when you come to... It's, it's, it's different degrees when we sin against each other or do harm to each other. But when you sin against the living God, the holy God that is pure, loving, and true is absolute cosmic treason. And there will be a penalty against that. That makes sense to me. So we all are faced with these decisions. We have to think about what do we fear the most in our lives. And Scripture reminds us the reason that we have to make these decisions. All of us, none of us are exempt from it. It's because we are all born under the wrath of God. Ephesians 2.3, by nature we're children of wrath. We're born under the wrath of God with a sinful nature. And the only way to escape the wrath of God is to run into the arms of God with a repentant heart. So these kind of decisions and scenarios are not just meant for the elite or the martyrs in heaven. These are the kind of things that everyday Christians have to think about. Things that you and I have to think about. They're decisions that we would do well to make far in advance. Well, the persecution has not come as intensely as it has in other places of the world and in other times. But it may come. And it, we are wise to make the decisions before we get into the heat of the moment. Isn't that what our parents, our Christian parents tell us when we become teenagers and we get in the hormones start raging? And we get into the dating world? And our parents teach us, look, before you get into the heat, that the heat of the moment is not the time to make a decision about whether it's right or wrong when it comes to purity and impurity. You want to make that decision. You want to see it as true in advance so that when the time comes, you know where you stand. And that's what we have here. 
We have an opportunity to make decisions in advance. What do we really believe? What do we hold true? What is our salvation? Because when the situation comes, our thinking gets a little cloudy. Circumstances change. So it's, it's now that we make these decisions. It's, ma- it's now, it's today that we set boundaries in our lives. We're, how far are we going to go over into the area of evil? How much will we allow ourselves to transgress? What is our relationship to God? Where are our boundaries? Where are our dividing lines regarding uh, suffering for Christ or persecution for Christ? Are we properly prepared for the battles that we are in perhaps right now or the battles to come? There is much at stake. You know, we read the New Testament and in all the epistles we see at least the Apostle Paul wrestling with this same reality. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, I won't read all of those verses, but he says, Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? When you talk about salvation, we talk so much about salvation, sometimes we forget what we're being saved from. What are we being saved from? We're being saved from the wrath of God. That's what we're saved from. It's, not just, it's just not being saved from, from maybe a bad relationship or a few unwise decisions. It's being saved from the wrath of God. That was a very terrifying and important thing in the New Testament and in Paul's mind. But he also wrestled with other things, and that is, how far will I go with God? What do I do when times get rough? In Romans chapter 8 and 18 and 19, he says, I consider, so he's been thinking through this as he lives for Christ, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now you know the Apostle Paul suffered tremendously, more than any of us will ever have to endure. He suffered in every conceivable way that you can suffer. And he suffered because he wanted to make the truth of God known. Because when you make the truth of God known and people embrace it, they are saved from the terrifying wrath of God. And so he had to wrestle with this. This hurts. This is a painful thing to do to share the gospel in some circumstances. Some people love you and embrace you for it because you have... have brought to them a truth that will set them free, and other people resisted. Of course, the enemy is behind all of that resistance and that rebellion. But it's not a smooth road to do this task. Paul was called to that as well as all Christians. And so he wrestled with it. Now it's interesting to me how he made his decision. He put truth on the scale. He put the pain on the scale, the present, the future, and God's truth. Then he weighed the present pain against what God promised in His Word in the future. And based on what God reveals in His Word, He says it's a no-brainer. As much as this life hurts, 
And as much as I'm suffering for the Lord, I won't even remember this. It'll be a drop in the bucket compared to the promises that God will reveal and unfold for us in eternity. So that's the kind of reasoning we need to do, what we need to do as we think about persecution that that might come. And the enemy likes to get us in the dearest places. He likes to get us in the places that mean the most to us, to where we think, I can't live without that. Thinking about these things, where are we in this? What do we use to weigh out what the world throws at us? To weigh out all the threats that are on the horizon. The truth of God's Word. You know, one of the main reasons for the entire book of Revelation is to prepare the people of God for the potential suffering. And to prepare us what comes for what comes in the end. And so, in the book of Revelation are royal treasures from the Word of God. Things that we can hear, things that we can cling to on a daily basis. Because it's in this book that we have not just reality, but stark reality. Everything is exaggerated. It's like there's no middle ground. There's no gray areas like what we have to deal with in this world. There, there's a heaven and a hell. There's a good and an evil. And, what, and, and you're either for God or you're against Him. And these kind of decisions need to be Made And it's God's grace to give us this advance warning before the persecution comes or while we still can make these kind of decisions. What do we value most? Henry Morris says, John's words are a reminder that throughout history, there has been a persistent hostility toward deeply committed Christians on the part of those wielding power. Christians face harassment all over the globe. And it's always been that way. More than any other faith, by the way. According to the 2021 World Watch List, based on averages, every day 13 Christians are killed for their faith. Every day 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Every day... Twelve Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. So in one part of the world or another, Christians are being slaughtered and persecuted and punished. And there have been more Christian martyrs in the last 150 years, I'm told, than in the last 18 centuries. And so we have these Christian martyrs, and they are in heaven, and they are under some kind of altar of sorts. And what are they doing? They are crying out to the Lord. They're crying for justice. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? And they're wondering. I'm sure in their minds is also the thinking that there are others down on earth, perhaps their loved ones that may have to suffer the same thing. So in a sense, it's a cry of vengeance and justice. And a lot of people, Christians, get alarmed because they say, wait a minute, we can't do that. We're Christians and vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we're not to exact vengeance, which is true. 
And that's exactly what these Christians are doing. They're, they're putting it in God's court and they're saying, since you are the God of vengeance and justice, how much longer will we have to wait before we get to see that justice? So it is a cry for that. They're not crying out for some kind of personal satisfaction or, or uh, you know, some kind of vengeance that, that they want to see their enemies squash. It's a matter of justice. Because if God is a God of justice, then something has to be done. Well, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when in there, how long. Holy One of Heaven, will you allow these things to go on before justice is met. And they're pleading against those who dwell on earth. And that term in Revelation symbolizes all those that are in rebellion against God. In Revelation, it basically describes those who worship the beast. You'll hear them describe those who dwell on earth. Those are the ones that will worship the beast that we will read about in the future. They are the ones that rejoice over the harm and the persecution of God's people. They revel in it. Revelation doesn't see unbelievers as friendly people, but those who oppose the things of God. Again, it's very stark. It's very black and white. You're either for us or you are against us. As we zealously serve the Lord and call out those or call out for justice. We're reminded in this passage that God makes those decisions and it's, God time, it's God's timing. There was an interesting uh, passage in Joshua, I can't remember the chapter, that pertains to this. But Joshua, Moses has died. Joshua, I think it's Joshua 6, maybe 9. But Joshua is now in command and the plan is to go in and possess the promised land. Finally, they cross over the river. They leave their, their um, rocks of memory there, their Ebenezers. And so they are prepared and amped up for battle. And Joshua is in a state of prayer. And he looks up and he sees some kind of warrior with a sword. And his question is, are you for us or against us? They're about to go to battle and they're very close to Jericho. Are you for us and against us? The sword is drawn. It has to be one or other. And it was the Lord, the commander of the host. And he says, no. He doesn't answer the question. He says, no. It's not whether I'm for you. It's whether you're for me. I'm in charge here. And we get a sense of that with these saints that are crying out for justice. I'm in charge here. It's, it's not whether I'm for you, but it's whether you are for me. And look at this answer, the surprising answer that the commander-in-chief gives. It's not the chirpy, cheery answer that we might expect. It's not like all cheer-up things are on the men's. It's not time for justice to be exacted because there are more of you to come. There, there is more blood that must be spilled. Well, that's the answer of the God who is in control. As terrible as it is, 
And as unjust as it is, there will be more of the same because there's a certain number in God's redemptive plan that needs to take place for God to get to a point where the justice will fall heavy. More blood, more death of all things. It's not about if, it's about when. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been safe. Of course, the white robe represents purity and it's God's way of saying it's not time. So rest and the security and the safety that you have here. Enjoy the blessings of heaven. But simply put, the blood of Christians has been spilled ever since the days of Christ. And they will continue, the blood of Christians will continue to be spilled in different places and different times until the Lord returns. And so he is saying, enjoy your time here. Because that day has not come. You see how this book causes us to think and to make decisions. And it's not just something that's up there. It's something that's, that we face every day. Because we're deciding every day how much we value God and how much we believe in His truth based on our decisions and our actions. And we can be persecuted in small ways, just peer pressure. But it's still painful. It's not as intense, but it's daunting. Then we have the sixth seal. When he opened the sixth seal, now we're back to judgment. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. I'm sure you're familiar with the hymn, It Is Well. It Is Well. We recently sang that hymn. And there's a line in that hymn that says, The sky may be rolled back like a scroll. Now you know where that line came from, right out of the book of Revelation. But in this judgment, in the sixth seal, there's no more horsemen that are called forth to wreak havoc. Now, creation wreaks havoc on itself. It's a cosmic disturbance. Of course, it's not to be taken literally. We wouldn't exist if something like this happened taken li- to be taken literally, and there's more to come. The idea is that the earth is unusually shaken up. And there are times when, the, when there are tragedies and disasters that cause us to shake in our boots. And this is one of those disasters. It's described as the wrath of the Lamb and the day of the Lord in verse 16. The day of the Lord is an Old Testament phrase. And you would think the day of the Lord, the Lord's coming back. It's a wonderful thing. You would think, it, let's throw a party. And, that, and yet that's not the attitude when that word or phrase comes because along with the presence of God comes the judgment of God. It's that day when the decisions are fixed for eternity. And so there's, this, there's, uh, there's fear mixed in with this day of the Lord. It's not a big party and celebration. It depends on what 
decisions you've made. It depends on what side you have been standing on. Even when the presence of God fell so heavily in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai, all the Jewish people were at the foot of the mountain. It was such a terrifying scene with with the lightning and the thunder and the smoke as the presence of God descended on that mountain that they decided, uh, we don't want this kind anymore. We want Moses to talk to him from here on out. They were too terrified by the presence of God. So unless we're ready to meet him, the, the, the day of the Lord is not a good day. I'll just read one verse, Joel 2.30. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So it's a catastrophe. We experience catastrophes on small scale, smaller scale today. I believe that the judgments of God, and I've said this before, will occur between the advents, beginning in the first advent of Christ and between the second advent of Christ, that we will, the world and Christians will face certain judgments and persecutions, but that there is a final judgment that's going to come that will be way more fierce than all the judgments that we have experienced in this time. But even these that we experience in our day, they humble us. They make us feel small. You see catastrophe. There's no engineering in the world that can withstand certain magnitudes of earthquakes. The only earthquake that I have experienced one time in my life, it was actually in Nottoway County several years ago. And it was just this slight tremor that was a little bit more than when Fort Pickett, barefoot um, bombs, when they run their exercises and used to do that, sometimes you could feel the ground shake a little bit. But it was more than that. It, and I was in my yard and I paused like, uh, that wasn't Fort Pickett. What was that? Come to find out it was an earthquake. Those kind of things, and that was enough to creep me out. And nothing in my house was broken at all. Have you ever heard of tornado? It's like a locomotive. I mean, they're just things, forces of nature that remind us how small and vulnerable we are. Because most of the time we go through life in our heads thinking we're unstoppable. We got this. And that's what we're taught to say. You got this. Nothing can stop you. And in real life, that's not the case. So what do we do in cases like this when we feel so vulnerable? You run for cover. Verses 15 through 7, the kings of the earth in this great catastrophe that's being described, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide on us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's the idea. When the wrath comes, we are immediately realize there's no way I can fight against this. I will easily be overcome. And everyone realizes this. The rich, the powerful, the poor, slave free, all of them are crying out, hide us from this day. Hide us from this wrath. It is too fierce. We can't take it. We do not stand a chance. 
I want to read an old hymn called The Great Judgment Morning and as we close. I dream that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dream that the nations had gathered to judgment before the white throne. From the throne came a bright shining angel who stood on the land and the sea and swore with his hand raised to heaven that time was no longer to be. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. The rich man came to the judgment. His wealth had all melted away. The poor man stood in the docket. His debts were, his debts were too heavy to pay. The soul that had put off salvation. Not today. I'll get saved by and by. No time now to think of religion. At last he had found time to die. The good man stood in the judgment, but his self-righteous rags would not do. The men who had crucified Jesus had passed off as mortal men do. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. The final judgment of Christ will outshine all the previous judgments to come. God periodically shakes us up. He shakes the, the earth up in different places in different time. He sees fit as an act of grace to prepare us, to snap us out of our stupor that we often find ourselves in as we lose sight of the reality of the kingdom of God. Things come. I remember our national tragedy, 9-11, was quite humbling. As the United States, we have a tendency to think that we are impenetrable as the greatest power or nation on earth. After 9-11, Gallup did a poll, and the churches began to fill up that following week. It increased by 6%, which I thought was a low number. Because I remember that time. But things like this, those kind of catastrophes and, and judgments, whether we know the specifics or not, they certainly shake us up and get our attention. And they help us to realize the truth that we're mortal. And they help us to realize that death will come. And we have to decide what's on the other side. And what sources will we draw from to make those kind of decisions? And I think that we have this book as a gracious gift of God to lead us through this life and the life to come. And that every time we hear it, like we hear it this morning, God reaching out His hand to a people in need, an opportunity for the lost to get saved and the saved to be further sanctified. And I trust that God's Word has caused us to think, and hopefully caused our affection to be set on Him so that we, we will love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, and our mind. May God bless the preaching of His Word.